Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And in honour of International Women's Day, this episode is on feminism and body image. We are going to discuss how feminism is related to our appearance and how feminism can influence our attitudes to our bodies and how we look. We're really excited about our special guest for this episode, Melissa Fabello. Melissa is the managing editor at Everyday Feminism, one of the most popular online feminist magazines. Melissa's going to help us unpack some of the trickier feminism appearance-related questions. And also, in honour of this year's theme for International Women's Day, Be Bold for Change, we're going to end with some top body confidence tips from members of the CAR team to remind us that there are things that we can do to smash the patriarchy, and be bold to change the way that we feel about our appearance. Put simply, feminism refers to the quest for equality for all people. Since the turn of the 20th century, feminist movements have famously fought and continue to fight for women to enjoy the same rights as men, including the right to vote, to be educated, to work, to receive equal pay, to have equal rights within a marriage, and for reproductive rights. So, how is body image a feminist issue? Well, to start with, it probably will come to no surprise that a lot of girls and women are unhappy with their appearance. Depending on what and who exactly is being asked, surveys show that as many as 80% of girls and women dislike something about how they look. And while we know and appreciate that boys and men also experience struggles with their appearance, and we will be dedicating an episode to male body image soon, Research consistently shows that appearance concerns disproportionately affect women. Yeah, more girls and women are unhappy with how they look. And compared to their male counterparts, girls and women almost always report being more dissatisfied with their appearance. Yeah, and what we typically see as a result is that on average, women and girls invest far more time, energy and money in trying to change or enhance the way they look. For example, research shows that women and girls are more likely to diet and adopt unhealthy eating behaviours. And roughly 90% of all eating disorder sufferers are female. Women and girls are more likely to think they're fat. Even when they're objectively not. They are more likely to tan or bleach their skin. And that's another episode coming soon. And women and girls are more likely to get cosmetic surgery to change their appearance. Right, and the British Association of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, or BAPS, issued a report last month which found that in the UK in 2016, women had 92% of all cosmetic procedures. 92%? Mm-hmm. And incidentally, the report, aptly titled The Bust Boom Busts, it's a bit of a tongue twister, revealed some potentially positive news after our cosmetic surgery episode. It found the overall number of cosmetic surgery ops in 2016 dropped by 40% after the UK's 2015 record-breaking high which is huge. The report attributed the drop to a climate of global fragility, financial constraints, and an increasing preference of non-surgical procedures. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a sidebar. Where were we? Um, we were going through all the ways girls and women are affected by appearance concerns compared to men. <laughs> this could be the longest episode, but let's try and be brief. I think we've established that girls and women are more likely to resort to potentially unhealthy or harmful behaviours to change the way they look. Yeah, but as we know, the consequences of negative body image are not limited to health. How you feel about your body also affects your social life and how engaged you are at school or at work. Yeah, and in a report commissioned by the UK Government Equalities Office, CARS Philippa Diedrichs and Emma Halliwell, along with Susie Allback, outlined the link between girls' poor body image and reduced educational and social participation, reduced confidence and performance, 
and reduced levels of cognitive functioning. The report is called Costing the Invisible, and we'll put a link to it in the episode description, so take a look. And more recently, findings from research conducted by our partners at the Dove Self-Esteem Project suggest these effects are found among women globally. The 2016 Dove Global Beauty and Confidence Report found that of the 10,000 plus women aged 10 to 64 they interviewed across 13 countries, 85% of women and 79% of girls said there had been a time and then they had opted out of social activities because they felt bad about their appearance. Yeah, they also found that 50% of women and 70% of girls have not been assertive in their opinion or stuck to their decision because of a lack of body confidence. So, bottom line, low body confidence is a huge barrier for girls and women in reaching their full potential. Exactly, and that's why our partners at the Dove Self-Esteem Project and at the World Association for Girl Guides and Girl Scouts work with us here at the Centre for Appearance Research to help develop and evaluate materials designed to boost girls' body confidence and self-esteem. You can hear more about what this looks like in episode 6. On that, another side note, Carl's Philippa Diedrichs, who leads the research with the Dove Self-Esteem Project and the World Association for Girl Guides and Girl Scouts, will be speaking this month at the UN Status on the Commission for Women, taking place in New York. The theme of this year's UN Status on the Commission for Women is women's economic empowerment, so Philippa will be talking alongside our partners at Dove and Girl Guides about how body confidence relates to this and female empowerment more generally. Anyway, back on topic... We know from endless research that a big part of the problem is the unrealistic beauty ideals that girls and women are subjected to and told to aspire to on a daily basis in advertising and in the media. Yeah, where women we see are almost exclusively thin and toned, young, predominantly white, or when women of colour are visible, they're fair-skinned. Right, and relatedly, as a result of society privileging these characteristics for women, women who do not reflect society's traditional standards of female beauty are subject to bias or unfair treatment. For example, women are much more likely to be subjected to weight stigma compared to men. Right, and you remember Sigmund Daniel's daughter speaking on our social activism episode about weight stigma. Um, But to recap, weight stigma essentially refers to negative bias or discrimination towards people who are larger in size. And what we typically find is that larger women experience greater discriminatory treatment compared to larger men. Yeah, and this happens in schools, in the workplace and in the media. For example... And this is also supported by research, by the way. Larger-than-average girls are more likely to be teased at school than larger-than-average boys or normal-sized girls. And at work, with all other things considered equal, larger-than-average women are less likely to be hired or promoted than average-sized women, and at a much greater ratio than when you compare the likelihood of a larger-than-average-sized man to an average-sized man. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. Okay. (laughs) And... In the media, a woman's size is a constant source of criticism or mockery, regardless of their success or accomplishments. Yeah, and I think we probably should say here that this criticism isn't just related to a woman's body shape and size. Age and race play into this too. Just think about how often the media has called Hillary Clinton, former US Secretary of State and presidential candidate, frumpy or fat or old or tired looking, or how tennis champion and 23 Grand Slam winner Serena Williams has been described as manly, looking savage, or beast-like, or just like a gorilla. Ugh, I know, it's so gross. Anyway, important to point out here too, is that we're not suggesting it would be good that men are also subjected to the same kind of criticism and appearance pressure. Uh, Rather, imagine a world where all people's bodies, so women, men, trans folk, are treated respectfully. Now, that kind of equality would be awesome. Now, bringing this all back to the feminist movement, 
a big part of second wave feminism. So between the 1970s and 1990s, was critiquing the advertising industry and the unrealistic beauty standards for women. So during this time, prominent feminists wrote seminal books. Yeah, like Susie Orbach's Fat is a Feminist Issue, published in 1979, where Susie argued that gender inequality makes women fat, and that for many women, compulsive eating and being fat have become one way to avoid being marketed or being seen as the ideal woman. Yeah, and then there's Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth, published in 1991, which describes how beauty expectations, especially the pervasiveness of the thin, idolised body, increase for women as a type of backlash against the increased numbers of women entering the workforce. The argument goes, by shifting the focus of women's attention on self-improvement of their appearance, they can no longer be as engaged in social action. Yeah, and also around that time, Susan Bordeaux published her book called Unbearable Weight, which critiques the unrealistically thin ideal and its role in perpetuating body dissatisfaction and eating disorders in women. And what's interesting now is that we've entered a third wave of feminism, sometimes described as post-feminism, where feminists are more divided on their views towards beauty. On the one hand, some feminists remain aligned to second wave feminism with the view that our cultural preoccupation with appearance is a source of wasted effort and expense, a threat to physical and psychological well-being, and a trigger for workplace discrimination. Yeah, while others, often referred to as post-feminists, view the pursuit of beauty as a source of pleasure and agency, and that the work women choose to do on their bodies, and or its appearance, are empowering acts. Okay, so this has been a bit of a longer than usual introduction. And we will stop talking in a moment, we promise. <laughs> but before we get to our special guest, I think we should just talk for a few more minutes about how feminism has been applied to appearance research. Okay, so an important feminist theory related to body image and appearance is objectification theory, proposed by Barbara Fredrickson and Tommy Ann Roberts. Objectification theory has been supported by a ton of evidence from correlational, empirical and longitudinal studies and argues that ubiquitous sexual objectification of women, or the presentation of women as sexual objects by men intended for the male viewer that we see so regularly in the media and in advertising, leads women to internalise this objectification. That is, women start to see themselves as objects to be viewed by other people. So this internalised view of the self as an object is referred to as self-objectification, which plays out in women constantly assessing, monitoring and checking their bodies. This is often referred to in the literature as body surveillance. Right, and in turn, self-objectification and body surveillance can lead women to experience negative emotions about their bodies, such as shame or anxiety, as well as reduced concentration on mental and physical tasks, and a disconnection of internal body states such as hunger or fatigue. Yeah, and unsurprisingly, all of these negative experiences build up over time and lead directly to a subset of mental health risks that also occur at a disproportionately higher rate among women and girls, such as depression and eating disorders. So that's objectification theory 101 and how it relates to body image. Oh, Jade, this is such a depressing bad news episode. Tell me some good news. Well, hold on, Nadia. So there is hope. A review of 26 studies by Mernon and Smolak found women who identify as feminists report significantly higher body satisfaction than non-feminist women. Although the effect size was small, possibly because pressures to achieve the ideal body are so strong, they are difficult to resist. Okay, right. And then there's also the study by Bronsky and colleagues looking at Project Eat data, who found the same thing, that women who identified as feminists were more body positive than those that didn't. 
Project EAT, by the way, is one of the biggest longitudinal studies looking at body image and eating behaviours among adolescents in the US, and is run by Professor Diane Neumachsteiner and colleagues out of the University of Minnesota. Right, however, what's interesting in that study is that identifying as a feminist didn't protect the women from a risk of disordered eating, which suggests that self-identifying as a feminist may promote positive body image, but might be insignificant to change behaviour. So there's still a way to go. Exactly, but we really have now been talking for far too long. Time now for our special guest, Melissa Fabello. Melissa Fabello is the managing editor of Everyday Feminism, one of the most popular feminist digital media sites in the world, with over 4.5 million monthly visitors from over 150 countries and a team of over 40 writers. Seriously impressive. As well as her role as editor at Everyday Feminism, Melissa is a body acceptance activist, sexuality scholar and feminist living in Philadelphia. She also holds a Master's in Education in Human Sexuality from Widener and is currently working towards her PhD. Um, and you'll appreciate this, I think, Jade. Okay. In her bio on Everyday Feminism, it mentions that as well as enjoying rainy days, tattoos and cats, Melissa probably knows more about Jurassic Park than feminism. Okay, interesting. Let's find out. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. Um, I'm Hi, really thank you. thrilled to have you. So I'm so excited. Awesome. Great. So you've written a lot about feminism and body image, which is the topic of today's episode. And feminism means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I want to start broad and ask what feminism means to you. That's such a good question, and it's a really important one because people, exactly what you said, people have really different ideas of what feminism is, so it's a good bottom line to start mm-hmm. with. Um, for me, I think of feminism as a collective movement working toward liberation from oppressive systems for all people, um, so I don't really think about it as something necessarily gender-focused, um, but rather something that is a it's a social justice it's like everything that that could fall under social justice whether that's race um, class education um, sexual orientation all of those things I think fall under feminism Mm -hmm. great so how does in your view feminism apply to body image I think that feminism and body image are are absolutely inseparable Um, I think that it's impossible to do work within the realm of body image, like um, to be unpacking the like, sociocultural aspects of body image without being a feminist or having your ideas rooted in feminism. Because the conversation about how society affects the way that we think about our bodies is a conversation that started within feminism. So I think like I know a lot of people who will have, will talk about that stuff, will talk about um of the sociocultural influences on how we feel about our bodies, but then we'll say, I, you know, that they don't identify as feminists. And I'm like, well, where did you get that information from then? Like, where, like, it didn't mm-hmm. come out of nowhere. You definitely didn't make it up. <laughs> so, like, where do you think that the, you know, the bulk of that research, you know, was done? Um, so I think, yeah, I think they're really inseparable, but also I think um, beyond just the fact of, like, the conversation about body positivity, for example, being birthed from feminism, beyond that, I also think that, Feminism and conversation about body image is so necessary because there is so many, the body being a site of oppression, like the body being a place where oppression um, shows up in the way that uh, society tries to control 
marginalized or oppressed people at the site of the body, I think has a huge effect on how we feel about our bodies. Like the more oppressed that we are as people, the worse we're probably going to feel about our bodies because our bodies are constantly under attack in various ways. So I think feminism is a really good framework for unpacking and understanding how oppression affects the way that um, that we relate to our bodies and how other people relate to our bodies, which is also a big part of um, the conversation about body-based oppression. And that feminism is a really, I just think a really necessary component to having that conversation. I, I just don't think that it's possible to talk about the ways in which our bodies are seen in social space without using a feminist lens, whether it's explicit or not. I just don't think it's really a possibility. Uh-huh, completely. Okay, and um, so you mentioned there about the body positive movement, and I have noticed that you've critiqued it recently on social media. Can you tell us a bit about like why that is and, and what your thoughts are there? You know, I think it's sort of, it, it follows kind of a critique that people can make and have made about mainstream feminism also. It's kind of similar which is that body positivity, in theory, is really great. It's this really great idea of um, combating the messages that we've received about our bodies, unpacking um, the way that we feel about our bodies, relearning how to feel about our bodies. That's all awesome. And it's kind of been hijacked in a way that I think is, is really diluted. And this is something that fat women or women of size talk about a lot. Um, and I definitely look toward them for for a better analysis of how this is harmful. But body positivity is a space that was created by fat women for fat women, the people who are most oppressed by um, the thin ideal. And when thin people like me come in and um, kind of like overtake body positivity, say, I want body positivity for me, and I want to center myself in the conversation about body positivity, then it becomes less and less radical, and it becomes actually more and more unsafe of a space for people who are the most marginalized, which is exactly what happens with feminism, that the whiter feminism becomes, the more cisgender feminism becomes, or the more wealthy feminism becomes, then fewer people actually get to benefit from it. So I think the thing about body positivity is that it's like it's similar to feminism. It's like this cool new thing that people want to be a part of um, and that they find a lot of joy in it. And I'm not saying I don't want people to feel joyful, but I, I just think that most people who are participating in these movements are not really critical thinkers and they're not necessarily thinking about how to center the most marginalized people. And I think that any time we take up space as people with more privilege in society, the more harm we're doing. So I think that even if body positivity helps us personally by participating in it, if we're also hurting other people by participating in it, you know, we're doing more harm than good. And I think I think that's something that we really need to be very aware of and pay more attention to. And I just don't see that really happening in the in the mainstream conversation about body positivity, which is disappointing. Uh-huh. Okay, sure. And so what do you think when um, like businesses ad adopt a body positive message? Do you see that as like co-opting feminism or like feminist views? I, or? Yeah, I am like so blown away when this happens. So like Weight Watchers, for example, we have that in the US. I don't know if they have uh -huh. that anywhere yeah. else. I, I, I wish not. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, no, we have it here too. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so Weight Watchers, for example, recently put out a campaign that they called body positive because it was about here are these women who lost weight on our program and now they feel good in their skin. 
Like, that is not what body positivity is. Like, body positivity is about accepting your body as is. It's not about getting to a certain space um, or a certain weight or a certain, you know, whatever, like, appearance, and then being proud of your body. And so that is, like, such a good example of how businesses can co-opt the language of body positivity because what we have right now, which is, like, it's a blessing and a curse, people are aware, are more media literate than they've been in the past. People are aware that businesses and advertising are can be harmful to their self-esteem. People are aware that they want something more. They want more representation. They want more diversity. They want more opportunities. And so that's a good thing. And so there's a demand for body positivity. There's a demand for feminism. There's a demand for all of these good things. And what advertisers do is they say, oh, I see what you want. I'm going to give you what you want, but also still sell you something. Like, that's exactly what they do. And so I think that a lot of different companies are using body positivity as kind of a catchphrase because they understand they, they understand people want to feel good. So they, they use all these kind of like feel good little like videos and stuff like that to get people to still buy their products. So, and I don't think that it's really possible, especially within any kind of like the weight loss industry or the beauty industry. I really don't think it's possible for those industries to advertise to people, uh, to get them to buy their products in a way that is inherently body positive. Like that just doesn't, that just like doesn't really make sense. Um, and I, I don't think that most people realize how, how nonsensical that actually is. Uh-huh. I mean, I think it's a really interesting point of debate. And we actually had a, a panel at our last conference, Appearance Matters 7, that happened last year in London that actually spoke to that topic, really, of businesses merging into that base. But then I think we get to a point where, you know, if you identify as a feminist, can you still engage in beauty practices and uh-huh. uh, and things like that? So I think one of the first articles I read of yours actually was on wearing makeup and feminism. So I wondered if you could tell our listeners what your take on that is yeah right so this is what complicates the conversation so even when I was saying what I was saying before I almost said and I didn't say but I almost made a, a note about how like you know obviously we all engage in or participate in in the beauty industry in some way right because even like if you buy soap like you can argue that that is still like in some way um a beauty product so I think right I have my feelings about makeup for example are complicated for me because I wear makeup. I wear makeup every single day. I'm wearing makeup right now. It's nine o'clock in the morning and um, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> like I'm just right. home. I work from home, right? I put makeup on. I would not leave the house without it. I recognize that that's not good, that I feel very strongly about that. Um, and I think also that we should be able to make choices that feel good to us while also recognizing how those choices can be oppressive or can buy into an oppressive system. I think that the issue with makeup isn't, it's not oppressive or patriarchal because it exists. It's oppressive and patriarchal because it's aimed at women and only women, and it's sold to us as something that we need. If makeup was just an option and anybody could wear it if they wanted to, I mean, technically that is true, but if it was presented as that, Mm -hmm, if it was presented as just... You know, anybody can wear makeup. Makeup is not um, like obligatory. Makeup is fun. Makeup is art. You know, if it was sold that way, um, then then I don't think that this would even be a question. The, the, so the issue isn't actually the fact that makeup is manufactured and that people use it, but rather 
how it's being used and how people feel about how it's being used. And I think when it comes to participating in oppressive systems, we all are participating in oppressive systems. Um, we can't really escape that or it's, it's very, very difficult to. And I think that it's more an issue of being aware of that. Like being aware of saying like, would I still wear makeup if I didn't grow up in a system that told me I had to? I don't know. There's no way for me to answer that question, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have no idea because that's not the situation that I, that I grew up in. So I don't know. And that's okay. I think that we can be critical of the things that we participate in. Similar to like, um, you know, watching movies or listening to music that we know is problematic. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't think that it's necessary to necessarily boycott things. Although I think that's an awesome form of activism also, but I don't think that that's necessary. I think we just need to have conversations with ourselves and with other people about how we're participating in oppressive systems and how to kind of subvert that in ways that we can. Okay, that was a great answer. Thank you so much. Okay, so a lot of our listeners are people who are interested in body image research. So why is it important for body image researchers and activists and health professionals even to incorporate a feminist approach into their work? Right. I think when it comes to feminism and research, I think that, you know, there are a lot of pros and cons. There, there obviously are reasons to bring any framework into the work that you're doing. And, and we have to hold space for the fact that we have biases that affect which frameworks we bring into our work and just be honest about that. Um, but I also think the thing about feminism that I think is most important to research, well, I guess it's kind of twofold. One is the inclusion, very purposeful inclusion of diverse groups of people. So I do a lot of work within eating disorders. Eating disorder research has historically been very, very focused on a very homogenous group of people, you know, thin, yeah. white, cisgender women with access to health care because it's usually inpatient treatment facilities where they're getting participants. And that focus, I think, makes it nearly impossible for research to be generalizable. Like, you can't say that this is generalizable to the population as a whole when you haven't actually researched the population as a whole. Mm -hmm. So... I think that one thing that feminism, one tenet of feminism that I think is really useful to research is that you can't say women experience X this way if you only talked to a very specific group of women. Um, so I think that that's one thing that's, that's helpful. The other thing that I think is helpful with a feminist approach to research is the idea of subjective truth as truth. Um, which is a, like a way too is like controversial of a of a thing to say in in research and also just like in the world. Whenever I say this, people get very angry. <laughs> but the <laughs> idea that there isn't necessarily objective truth that that doesn't necessarily exist because none of us live in an objective world. None of us are objective when we approach anything. We all have values that we bring to the table. So I think the idea that if I tell you a story that that story should just be taken as truth and that that is the research, that can be a very, like I said, controversial thing to say. But I think that that is also something really helpful within feminism, that it's not, I'm expecting a certain answer from you, or I'm giving you options for which answer you're going to give me, but rather you're going to tell me your story and I'm just going to believe it. Like, that's radical, and it shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't be that radical, but it is. But I think that's also something that feminism brings to research that's special. Uh-huh. Okay, that is really interesting. And then so you've written a lot about intersectionality and you spoke earlier about systems of oppression and points of privilege. Um, but can you explain and kind of expand a bit more about what intersectionality is for our listeners? And then how does this apply to body image? 
Right. So intersectionality is a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, although it had been a concept within Black feminism for a long time. Some work by Audre Lorde and Patricia Hill Collins are, are really good starting points for understanding the concept of intersectionality. Um, but intersectionality is the idea that our multiple identities that we hold are inseparable. So I like to think of it as like a constellation that my being a woman, my being cisgender, my being queer, my being thin, my being white, all of those things are, are like individual stars, right? And those individual stars make up the constellation of who I am, of like what my identities are. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we only focus on one thing, like we only focus on women, then we're only focusing on one star and we don't actually see the whole person. Um, and the thing about intersectionality is that all of those things intersect. They all interact with one another. They're like my whiteness is complicated by my womanhood or my womanhood is complicated by my whiteness that I can't separate those two things that as a woman, a white woman specifically, I experience the world differently than women of color or white men or men of color, that there's, mm-hmm. there are differences in how we experience the world and how the world experiences us. So basically the idea of intersectionality in short is recognizing that we all have multiple identities that make up who we are and that those identities affect one another. And I think that when it comes to body image, I think that's really important. Sort of what I was saying earlier around um, the more oppressed we are, like the more of those identities are on the scale of being oppressed rather than having power. Um, the more struggles that we tend to have with our body image because it's the further we're getting from the ideal and it's also that because the ideal is very much wrapped in in power mm-hmm. you know thinness and whiteness and all these things and um also that the more oppressed we are period then the more frequently our body is used as a site of oppression so that our body image is going to be potentially more negative um, or that we're going to have more complicated feelings about our body um, in space so Yeah, I think the intersectionality, I mean, when I talk about feminism, to me, intersectional feminism is the only feminism. I don't think that there's a feminism to me that doesn't take intersectionality into account. So all of these things, you know, they wrap up together that like the idea that, you know, we need to be addressing who people are in in reality and that that means recognizing that their identities are complicated and that we can't single out one part of them without recognizing how all the other parts of them affect that. Sure, yeah, I agree. I think it is really important and I, I really like the analogy of the constellations with the stars for the different yeah. <laughs> different points. So, um, coming to the end, but just on a more personal note, because like, I'm also studying for a PhD at the moment, how do you manage working full-time with your editor of Everyday Feminism mm-hmm. and doing your your PhD? How does that how does that work out for you? Mostly I cry a lot. <laughs> um, I think oh, that, no. <laughs> I think... Um, and I think it's important to like be real about it, that it's hard. It's not easy. It's not fun. I hate it half of the time because it's a lot. It's a lot of work. And I think I can only imagine what it would be like to also have a child. You know, like I know people who <laughs> yeah. are in doctoral programs and working full time and have children. Like I can't even imagine that. Like that's, you know, it feels impossible. I think um, one is time management, like the best time management that you can figure out. You know, like I'm a morning person, so I know mm-hmm. that I can get up at 5 a.m. and work on my dissertation before I have to go to work, for example, if I have to do that. So time management is one. 
also just like management of expectations you know like I thought I was going to be done with my dissertation by now and that's that really hasn't happened so I think also just managing expectations um and having a good support system having people around you who even if they don't understand because they're not in the same position will hold space for you um and having self-care practices um, tied into your daily life I think is also you know drinking enough water getting enough Mm -hmm. sleep those are small things but make a really big difference in our ability to function so I think that um, those are all but I guess that's the short that's the short answer yeah yeah well you're you're doing it that's the big thing I think is that you're you're doing it and you're you're nearly there you're the end is in sight so very last question so every Tuesday at car we hold a team coffee morning and we take it in turns to bring in cakes and before we were recording this um, this interview, we spoke a little bit about our conference, Appearance Matters 8, which is going to take place in June of 2018. So and we'd love you to come along to that and present your PhD research. So when you come and visit us, what cake would you bring to our coffee morning? That is a great question. I love this question. And I have a kind of a weird answer. And it's weird because I don't think I've ever actually had a cake like this, <laughs> but I want it. So I have this dream of like a chocolate cake with like toasted coconut frosting. That's like my dream. Like hmm. I have this dream of this cake that doesn't actually exist in the world as far as my ever eating it. So if I was invited to a place and was like, you have to bring a cake, I think that I would create the cake of my dreams. That sounds wonderful. And actually, we have, you know, we have cake every Tuesday, and I don't think we've ever had, to my knowledge anyway, a chocolate cake with coconut frosting. So I will be the one to bring it to you. Okay, wonderful. I'll look forward to it. Okay, Melissa, thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And that was Nadia speaking with Melissa Favello. I really like that part where she said that you can't separate body positivity from feminism. I know. She was so good, wasn't she? Um, it was great talking to her. Uh, side note, Melissa's one of my favourite people to follow on Twitter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you should follow her. Right, and before we end this special episode on feminism and body image, in honour of International Women's Day, we asked some members of the CAR team their top body confidence tip as a way to help us all resist the pressures to meet society's appearance ideals. Hi, my name's Ella Guest. I'm a research associate at CAR. And my body image tip is to appreciate the things you like about your own body rather than comparing it to other people's. Hi, I'm Catherine Griffiths and I'm a research fellow in CAR and my body image tip would be to really think about which things in your life are the most important and that you value the most. And this could be anything from work, hobbies, education, friendships or just travel in the world and then really make a plan to help yourself live in line with these values. Hi, my name is Georgia and I'm a research volunteer at CAR. My body confidence tip would be that your body hears everything that your mind says, so stay positive. Hi, my name's Helena Lewis-Smith. I'm a research fellow here at CAR and my body confidence tip is to embrace your individuality and try not to look like everybody else. Why would you want to? There's only one of you. Hello, my name is Jessica Liva. I'm an assistant professor at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. And my tip for body positivity is to focus on all of the incredible and important functions that your body carries out for you and to focus on why those functions are important and meaningful to you rather than focusing so much attention on how your body looks. Hi, my name's Hannah Jarman and I'm a research associate from CAR. And my body confidence tip for children and adults is think of someone special in your life and what it is that makes them special. 
This will help you remember that these people are special not because of the way that they look, but because of the things that they do and the people they are. So what's your top tip, Nadia? Oh, 100% move your body. Dance, run, do whatever makes you feel good. How about you, Jade? What's your top tip? Well, I'd say if you're going to engage in social media, follow someone who makes you feel good about your body. Oh wait, so who do you follow? Body Posse Panda all the way. Right, and that definitely brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Have a go at some of those body positive tips too and tweet us at UE underscore car, your favourite, or if there's any good ones you think we missed. Yes, we would definitely love to hear from you and join us next time when we'll be speaking about skin colour and global beauty ideals. Awesome.